0: Hey there, everybody. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 83, and today we are talking about ventilators. And before we dive into that topic, I wanted to give a quick listener shout out to Alan, who sent me this message on Facebook. Alan says... I listen to your amazing podcasts every day, even if I've heard them before. I just started nursing school and I find myself explaining concepts to the upper cohort because of you. Thank you so much for what you do. And I also love your book. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to send me that Very nice message that really, really made my day. And isn't it fun to help your fellow students? That's essentially how this whole website started. I was helping my classmates. Once I graduated, I was helping even the students who were in school, even after I graduated, and it blossomed into a website, then a book, then a podcast, then online courses, and the whole bit. So there you go, Alan, maybe you have a future as a nurse educator as well. So again, today we're talking about ventilators. So The first thing I want to tell you guys about taking care of patients who are on a vent is that, yes, if you are feeling nervous or scared, that's completely normal. So you can just stop judging yourself right now. And the reason you might be feeling nervous or scared is because, A, you know, a ventilator is life-supporting equipment, and you want to make sure that you understand how to approach your care of that patient with their ultimate safety in mind. And it's also maybe because ventilators are pretty complex pieces of equipment. So with that said... You could go to school for a couple of years to learn about ventilators, and then you would be an amazing respiratory therapist. But as a nursing student, even as a new nurse, we're just going to be talking about the must-know, need-to-know, basic information to get you feeling a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more aware of what's going on with your patient. So with that said, there is a lot out there about ventilators. And if that subject really inspires you, I invite you to dig much deeper into it. But first, just take this basic background knowledge, go to your clinicals. If you're new in the ICU, work with patients on event for a little bit, and you'll notice that your knowledge will slowly start to increase as you start taking care of more complex patients, and really getting into the hows and the whys of all the different ventilator settings and how it's adjusted to help meet your patient's goals. So before we get into all those little basics about ventilators, let's talk through a few key concepts first, okay? So the first concept to be aware of when you're thinking about ventilation is oxygenation. So I want you to think about the process of adding oxygen to the body is oxygenation. And then on the other side of that, we have ventilation. And that is the process of inhaling and exhaling. So if you think of ventilation as a mechanical component as a body moving a physiologic component, and then you think of oxygenation as adding that oxygen gas into the body as that chemical component, then you'll have these two concepts clearly differentiated in your mind. And then the next concept is hypoxemia. So hypoxemia means low oxygen level in that arterial blood. And if you've started taking your advanced med-surg course, and started looking at arterial blood gas analysis, you'll know that a normal blood oxygen level is 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury. That's the PaO2. And if you don't know what that means yet, don't worry about it. You will. Next, let's talk about the muscles of respiration. So the main ones that your patient will be using and that you are probably using right now because you're resting and hopefully not under any stress, unless, of course, you're out taking a very brisk walk or going for a run, the the main muscles of respiration are the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles. So again, those are the ones that are working when the patient is at rest and under no stress or duress or respiratory trouble of any kind. Now, when the patient's starting to work harder to breathe, that's when you'll start seeing accessory muscle use. And when we say accessory muscle use, think about when you bolt up a couple of flights of stairs because you're late to clinical and you're using more muscles to breathe. It's not just those diaphragm and intercostal muscles, you're starting to use things like the sternocleidomastoids, the scalenes, the external intercostal muscles, and the abdominal muscles as well. So when you're watching a patient breathe, and you'll get good at recognizing this, the more you assess patients, the more patients you see, and the more you're able to compare normals to abnormals, is that when the patient is using accessory muscles, it's usually pretty obvious because it looks like they're working to breathe. And if you need a reminder of that, just take a quick sprint up the stairs and you'll remember exactly what you're looking for when you're assessing your patients. The next concept is negative pressure ventilation. So under normal circumstances, Human beings, you and I right now, we're breathing, utilizing what's called negative pressure ventilation. So this means that when that diaphragm drops down and the intercostal muscles are going to pull those ribs outward, pleural pressure decreases and drops below atmospheric pressure. So that means negative pressure. And it's this negative pressure that draws air into the lungs. So as the diaphragm moves up, pleural pressure increases. So think about that. The diaphragm moves up, okay? It's essentially making that lung space smaller because it's moving up, and then the pleural pressure will go up, and that's going to push air out of the lungs. So the air comes in during the period of negative pressure when the diaphragm has dropped, and then is pushed out as the diaphragm moves up and pleural pressure increases. And then positive pressure ventilation, that's what we're using when a patient is on a ventilator or on something like BiPAP. Now the patient is breathing via positive pressure instead of their natural negative pressure. So instead of air being drawn into the lungs, because it's At negative pressure, air is forced into the lungs through an ET tube or a BiPAP mask. So does that make sense? So negative pressure ventilation is the normal. The diaphragm is going to drop down. The muscles are going to pull the ribs outward, and it's going to decrease the pressure in the lungs. And then that's going to draw the air in. And then the diaphragm is going to push up, increasing pressure in the lungs, and that's going to push the air out. And then when a patient's on a ventilator or wearing a BiPAP mask, they're breathing with positive pressure. Air is being forced in. Okay, so now that we've got a few key concepts under our belts, let's move on and just briefly talk about ventilator anatomy. So there's lots of different types of vents out there. But they all essentially have the same components. And when you're orienting yourself to a new ventilator or even the very first ventilator you ever see, absolutely um, find someone knowledgeable who can talk you through all the all the components of it. But mainly what you'll see is a big screen that's going to show waveforms. It's going to show data, a bunch of numbers. You'll see things like the respiratory rate. Um, their peak pressures, minute ventilation, all these things that you'll start to learn about as you work with patients on ventilators. You'll see their entitled carbon dioxide, all these different things. So there's a screen with a lot of information. And then you'll see buttons, dials, and knobs for adjusting those ventilator settings. Some of the ventilator settings will be adjusted on a touchscreen if the ventilator has that capability. Others may be done with knobs, and dials. These are typically managed by the respiratory therapist or the uh, ICU physician and sometimes by the nurse, but mostly it's respiratory therapy that manages the ventilator. And this will be to adjust things like FiO2 and PEEP, which we're going to talk about more in just a moment. And then I don't know if every vent has this. If it doesn't, it should. It's one of my favorite features of a ventilator. And it's this little button that you can push that's going to give the patient 100% oxygen. I think it's for about a minute. Maybe it's three minutes. I can't remember. It's for a moment. Um, I will use this if my patient's desatting. And I need to figure out what's going on. I'll give them that 100% oxygen. It will often help to get them back up to baseline. But of course, they were desatting for a reason. So it gives me a moment to work through how I can fix their situation. Maybe they need to be suctioned or something like that. And then you'll have tubing that is connecting air and oxygen to the ventilator. So that'll be hooked up to the wall in the hospital or a tank if you're mobile and taking your patient somewhere. And then there's tubing that will deliver oxygen. Actually, it's a mixture of air and oxygen to the patient, unless, of course, your patient is on 100% FiO2, then that's pure oxygen. But most patients are on a mixture, and that will be coming um, from the vent to the patient. And then there's usually some kind of an arm that will support the ventilator tubing. So that's essentially the basics of ventilator anatomy. Again, they're all a little bit different. When you get to the ICU, when you're faced with a new vent, take the time to orient yourself to its differences and absolutely reach out to the respiratory therapist. They are a wealth of knowledge and for the most part, really happy to share what they know. Okay, let's talk about ventilator settings. So like I said, ventilators are really complicated pieces of equipment. And as a student nurse, even as a brand new nurse, you're not expected to know all the details about ventilator settings. But I do want you to know some basic concepts. So there are three settings that I really want you to understand before you even take care of a patient on a ventilator. And that is FiO2, PEEP, and RATE. Notice these aren't the only things that you should know eventually, but they are the three most important things for you to know from the very beginning. So let's first talk about FiO2. FiO2 is the fraction of inspired oxygen. Essentially, it's how much oxygen, what percent of oxygen the patient is on. So recall that atmospheric oxygen level is 21%. So your FiO2 is always going to be more than 21%. Now the key with FiO2 is that we want to give just enough for a patient to reach their goal. If you give the patient high oxygen levels it can actually cause something called oxygen toxicity. And that can lead to all sorts of problems like central nervous system, complications. It can cause fibrotic lung tissue, which is not going to be good for your patient. And it can cause retinopathy as well, especially in those preterm infants. So just because oxygen is good doesn't mean that more oxygen is better. You always want to be using the least amount as you can with your patient to get your patient to meet his or her goal. And so then let's look at PEEP. So PEEP, is it, is that an acronym? P-E-E-P. I don't know if that's an acronym or a mnemonic. But anyway, PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure. And PEEP is essentially the amount of pressure that's in the alveoli at the end of expiration. So it's end expiratory pressure. So note that patients can have PEEP, their body creating PEEP. We call that physiologic PEEP. And that can be due to something called air trapping, which occurs in conditions like asthma and COPD. But what we're talking about is artificially raising the PEEP. And we do that to improve gas exchange. You might hear this called extrinsic PEEP. And if the patient has asthma and they have physiologic PEEP, you might hear that called intrinsic PEEP. But we're looking at extrinsic PEEP because it's a setting that we'll have adjusted on the ventilator according to what our patient needs. So again, PEEP is going to help us improve gas exchange. So when we have airway pressures rising above atmospheric pressures, so we're keeping that alveoli open artificially, we're helping it, we're keeping it open and we're keeping it above atmospheric pressure for a little bit of time to keep them open for a longer period. And with the alveoli open, we have greater surface area for gas exchange to occur. Okay, does that make sense? So we're adding extra atmospheric pressure into the alveoli. They're staying open longer. And now that they're open, they're basically bigger and rounder. There's more surface area for gas exchange to occur. And then PEEP also helps us with something called recruitment. And you guys might remember this from your anatomy and physiology class, the pores of cone. Do you remember those? Those were those little doorways that exist between the alveoli. And if you've got these higher pressures at end expiration, this enables us to open up those little doors, and access neighboring alveoli. So this is called recruitment. We're essentially recruiting neighboring alveoli to also participate in gas exchange. And we do that through the pores of cone. So that's why we use PEEP. I mean, there's a lot more that we could get into about PEEP, but those are the main basic reasons that we use PEEP. It gives us improved gas exchange. And another really great thing about that with improved gas exchange is that, guess what? We can often use less oxygen when we have PEEP on the patient. So if you've got less oxygen, then you have lower risk, hopefully, for oxygen toxicity. So PEEP levels typically range from like three to five centimeters of water all the way up to 24 centimeters of water. Note that that would be a very, very, very high PEEP. And that would be in a patient basically in acute respiratory distress syndrome. And I believe I have a whole podcast about ARDS if you're interested in learning about that. But one of the things that the ARDS protocol... Uh, guides the therapist and the MD into doing is adjusting the PEEP and the FiO2 to provide higher levels of PEEP and lower levels of FiO2 to meet the PaO2, that arterial blood gas oxygen goal. So we use PEEP, to keep the alveoli open longer and improve gas exchange, and hopefully enabling us to use even less FiO2 and reducing the risk for all the problems that prolonged and high oxygen levels can cause. Okay, now before you start thinking that PEEP is the answer to all of your oxygenation problems, it does actually come with some risks of its own. So PEEP, especially at those higher levels, can put the patient at risk for barotrauma such as a pneumothorax. Um, it can cause interstitial emphysema and pneumomediastinum. So if your patient's on high PEEP and suddenly their pulse oximetry SPO2 value plummets, I want you to be highly suspicious that they could have just had a pneumothorax. So you're going to run into their room. You're going to have your stethoscope, and you're going to see if you can hear lung sounds on both sides. So very possible with high levels of peep, and I've seen this happen. The oxygen levels drop. You have to go in there. Maybe you're not hearing very good lung sounds. Maybe you're even manually bagging the patient with 100% FiO2 and their SATs just won't come up. Very possible that they've had a pneumothorax. So you're going to get respiratory in there. You're going to get the MD. The MD is probably going to order a stat chest x-ray. And if you're really on top of it, you'll have a buddy go grab the chest tube setup kit just to be ready, just in case that that's what's needed. Okay, so we've talked about... FiO2. We've talked about PEEP. Now let's talk about the third setting that I really want you to understand, and that's rate. And that's essentially the respiratory rate set on the ventilator. So the therapist or the MD is going to determine the correct respiratory rate for the patient based off their unique physiologic profile and what their needs are. So for example, let's say you've got a patient who is acidotic because they're a a CO2 retainer and we really need them to blow off that CO2. Well, we can do that by increasing the rate on the ventilator to help them, quote, blow off their CO2. Some ventilator modes are going to allow the patient to initiate breaths, so it's always possible that a patient can breathe above the rate that is set by the therapist, and I would say usually... Um, I mean, not usually, but often that is the case. Patients will breathe above the vent um, for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they're in pain. Maybe they're stressed. um, You know, maybe they have high anxiety. Maybe they don't, um, they're delirious. They don't know what's going on. They're tachypnic for whatever reason. So a lot of times the patient will be breathing above the rate set by the therapist. But let's say you don't want them breathing that fast. Maybe they're blowing off too much CO2 and they're in respiratory alkalosis and Sometimes you have to lower their rate, and in order to get a patient to breathe at the rate that we want them to and not above it, we usually achieve this through sedation. Sometimes we can do it through changing the ventilator mode to something that's more comfortable for the patient, but a lot of times we achieve that through sedation. So again, the respiratory rate is going to be set based on what the patient needs, and that's usually based off their ABG analysis And if their CO2 is too high or too low, and how we can um, help them adjust that and get back into uh, homeostasis with their uh, acid-base balance. Okay, so we've talked about the three settings that I really want you to understand. FiO2, which is the fraction of inspired oxygen. Atmospheric is 21%. We can go all the way up to 100%, but we don't want to do that. Why? Because of oxygen toxicity. If you've got a patient on 100% FiO2 for a day, that's a bad sign. For a few days, that's a very bad sign. Um, Typically, what will happen is we'll start off, let's say you emergently intubate your patient, you're going to start them at 100% FiO2, get a blood gas, and then immediately start titrating the ventilator down. So a common vent FiO2, you know, 30 to 60% would probably be the most common. You're getting into the 70, 80%, 90, 100. You're looking at a pretty sick patient. Um, once we start getting down into the 30%, maybe even the 40%, we'll start looking at, is this patient ready to extubate? And I have a whole, I believe I did a podcast about it. I know I definitely wrote about it, a whole thing about ventilator ventilator weaning, Um, So that's a whole other topic there. And then the other concept we talked about was PEEP, which is that ability to increase the pressure in the alveoli at end expiration, holding them open, getting more surface area for gas exchange, and recruiting the neighboring alveoli to also participate in gas exchange. And then PEEP allows us to, in most cases, use less FiO2 though it does come with risks of its own, the main one being pneumothorax. And then we have the respiratory rate, which we can increase or decrease. Um, A lot of times if we have to decrease it and the patient's breathing too fast, we can achieve that through sedation. Okay, so now let's move on to talking about some ventilator modes. So, in addition to the FiO2 and the PEEP and the rate, the MD or the respiratory therapist is going to adjust how the ventilator delivers oxygen to the patient. And when we're looking at how it's delivered, we call this the mode. So, modes can be very broadly categorized as either pressure controlled or volume controlled. So, let's talk about volume controlled modes first. In volume controlled modes, What we're doing essentially is delivering a certain volume of air to the patient. So the most common of these volume controlled modes is called assist control ventilation. You may see it abbreviated abbreviated as AC or ACV, assist control ventilation. So in this mode, the patient is going to trigger the ventilator for each breath and the ventilator assists the patient by delivering a predetermined and controlled volume of air to the patient. And volumes are typically calculated as 8 mils per kilogram of ideal body weight. So if your patient is 200 pounds overweight, we're not going to take their actual body weight. We're going to look at their height, their frame, whatever, to come up with an ideal body weight and do our calculation based off that. So it's important to note that even though the patient is triggering their breath, we will be setting a backup rate just in case the patient doesn't meet a minimum requirement of breaths per minute. So let's say our minimum is 10. And if the patient doesn't breathe at least 10 times a minute, the ventilator is going to kick in and deliver a breath. So even though the patient is triggering the breaths, there's like a backup safety feature that will always at least deliver those 10 breaths per minute or whatever that backup rate is set at by the therapist or the MD. And then we have pressure controlled modes. And so in these mo- modes, we're going to inflate the lungs to a certain pressure. So one of the advantages of this is that there is less risk of barotrauma than with volume controlled modes that we just talked about. And one such mode is called pressure support ventilation. You might see it abbreviated as PSV, pressure support ventilation. And that's used a lot during the weaning process. And the patient in this case will also initiate each breath. And that extra support helps overcome the difficulty of breathing through that ET tube or a tracheostomy tube. And the bigger the pressure, basically, the bigger the breath. So that's volume controlled and pressure controlled in a nutshell. Okay, just the highlights, just the basic concepts. And then another mode that you may see in the weaning process is called CPAP. And we'll use this a lot either as we're weaning or maybe a patient has a chronic trach, maybe just for airway management, but they need a little bit of help. So we have them on CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure, and that's going to provide the patient with some pressure support while allowing them to control their respiratory rate and their volumes. So a lot of times you might have a patient who does CPAP all day and then will rest on a rate, we call it, resting on a rate at night with that extra support from the ventilator, giving them time to rest because it might be a lot of work for them to do CPAP all day. And then we have something called high frequency ventilation modes. And I just want to talk about these because they're really interesting and you might see them in the ICU, especially if you have a patient who is in acute respiratory distress syndrome. So two high frequency modes you might see are oscillatory and percussive. These both are going to require a special ventilator that can deliver a very, very, very high number of breaths per minute, sometimes up to 800. So it's actually giving them very, very low tidal volumes at a very, very, very high rate. So in the adult population, again, it's in ARDS patients or in patients who have ventilator-induced lung injuries. Um, One thing to understand is that this breathing pattern, obviously, is incredibly uncomfortable. It's physiologically very abnormal. So patients typically don't just have to be sedated. They have to be also paralyzed. So we'll do a whole thing about paralytics another time because it's really very interesting. But in order for them to tolerate this kind of high frequency ventilation, they must be deeply sedated as well as paralyzed. Okay, so before we close out, I want to tell you about two ventilator alarms that you absolutely must know. And like anything in the critical care environment, you will soon learn that there is sound effects associated with it. So the key with all the noises and the sounds in an environment like that is to be hyper vigilant and aware of what they are so that when you hear them, you immediately know what they mean and what you need to do about it. So there's two alarms with the vent I really want you to be constantly listening for. And that's the high pressure alarm and the low pressure alarm. And when you are orienting to the vent... You'll probably be hearing some of these sounds, and you'll get used to what the different sounds mean. But just make sure that you can identify, based on the sound it's making, what the alarm is. So the high-pressure alarm is going to sound when there's high pressure in that circuit. And when we say the circuit, we're talking about the vent to the patient. Um, That circuit, it's a closed circuit. The air goes from the vent through the ET tube into the patient and then back out again. So when pressures within that circuit are too high, you will get a high pressure alarm. And this is usually due to the patient coughing. So the patient will start coughing and then the vent starts alarming its high pressure alarm and then the family at the bedside is freaking out because they're hearing an alarm and they don't realize it's just because the patient is coughing and then everybody gets all anxious and excited. But It doesn't mean that you don't have to investigate, even though it is very common. So that coughing has increased intrathoracic pressure, and now your high-pressure alarm has gone off. It could also be because of an occlusion in the ET tube. Maybe there's a big clog of sputum that is occluding your patient's airway, and they need to have it suctioned out. So when that high-pressure alarm goes off, definitely it could be that the patient needs suctioning. If you do need to suction your patient, don't forget to pre-oxygenate them first. And you're going to limit each suction pass to less than 10 seconds. I believe that's across the board. But if your school teaches something different, of course, go with that. Also be aware that you don't want to over suction patients as this can cause some trauma to the airways as well. And just being mindful that you're limiting suction to only times when it's needed versus it's not something that you would do on a schedule, like every two hours, it's pretty much only as needed. And then the other alarm is that low pressure alarm. So this alarm, probably a little scarier if you hear this one, because it might mean that your patient um, has pulled their ET tube out. So the reason this alarm goes off is because there's low pressure in the circuit. So that's often because tubing has become disconnected somewhere. Patients that have tracheostomy, I don't know what it is about a tracheostomy, but that whole connection is just, it's just, it's not the most secure. People pop off the vent all the time when they have a trach, especially if they're awake and alert, moving around a lot, popping off the, off the vent all the time. So you'll hear that low pressure alarm there. Um, it's often the connection at the um, ET tube or the tracheostomy tube in the vent, but it could be anywhere along the circuit. So when you go into a room, because you have a low pressure alarm, look at the patient and then follow the tubing and find where the disconnection has occurred. Um, Also, it could be because the patient has pulled the ET tube out. So um, Just be highly aware of that sound. If you've got a patient who's starting to wake up, maybe they're getting really fidgety, maybe they're not in restraints because some hospitals don't use restraints. I don't know how they keep patients from self-extubating all the time. But um, let's say you've got a patient like that and you're in the room next door and you suddenly hear the low pressure alarm going off. Be highly suspicious that your patient has extubated himself. You're going to hustle in there and make sure that he or she is okay. Okay, so to summarize, if your patient is on a ventilator, I want you to always be thinking about four things. I want you to be thinking about the mode of the ventilation. I want you to be thinking about how much FiO2 they are receiving, how much PEEP they are receiving and what their rate is. And as you get more accustomed to taking care of critically ill patients, you'll learn that this information can really tell you a lot about them, as well as um, how the ventilator can be adjusted to compensate for their physiologic imbalances. And you'll also learn how, how vent changes are made as you begin liberating your patient from the ventilator or weaning your patient from the ventilator. You know, that FiO2 will come down, the PEEP will decrease, the respiratory therapist will try them on a mode that allows them more control over their rate and their depth. You'll see how sedation affects their respiratory rate, how coughing is going to cause that high pressure alarm to go up, how different modes on the ventilator can increase synchrony and patient comfort. And I also don't want you to, again, to forget that you have a huge resource of knowledge in the respiratory therapist. So don't be shy. Get in there and ask lots of questions. I've had the pleasure of working with some just incredible therapists who love to teach. And without them, I would not know one-tenth of the things that I know about ventilators today. So get in there and ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid. To show what you don't know, I always say the scary nurse is the one who never asks any questions, okay? So speak up, ask questions, you're learning, no one expects you to know everything. And I hope that this brief overview of ventilators helps you feel a little bit more confident about your critical care rotations, and the things that you're learning in your advanced med surge course. If you have a specific question or want to share one of your experiences, absolutely shoot an email to me at hello at straight a student.com. I love hearing from you guys. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do just hit that subscribe button so you'd never miss an episode. And if you would be so kind as to rate and leave a review, that helps us boost our standing in the charts and show up for more students. And then just two quick announcements. So for those of you who are interested in getting more organized for nursing school, I do have the nursing student planners in my Etsy shop, which I will have a link to in the show notes. And we are almost ready to launch our app, which I cannot tell you I am so excited about. So if you're interested in getting on the notification list for when the app is launched, I will include the link to that as well. It's just a quick little sign-up form. I will email you when the app is launched that does not put you onto my main email list. So if your email list shy, it is just for announcing that the app has launched. So I will link to that as well. As always, I want to thank you so very much for spending your very precious free time with me today. And I hope to see you back here next week when we dive into a pharmacology topic and take a close look at corticosteroids. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.